welcome to episode 25 of How We Win. All over the country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to jump in and make a difference right now. The best antidote to anxiety is action. Mm -hmm. The clock is ticking, and we want you to join the party. Today, our party is joined by Obama (laughs) alum and author Chris Liddell Westfeld. In 2014, he started documenting the story of the first Obama campaign through oral history interviews. That work culminated in his great new book, They Said This Day Would Never Come, Chasing the Dream on Obama's Improbable Campaign. We'll hear how they organized on Obama's campaign, the important role that volunteers played, of course, and how we can apply those lessons now, right now. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How We Win. So Trump is headed west this week. He is rallying up a storm using his official presidential duties to use our taxpayer monies as campaign stops. I mean, he's not using our taxpayer monies to do any real work, so... Why not come out west and 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 rally some folks? Let's spend our money to <laughs> golf and campaign and to do a flyover with Air Force One at a NASCAR race. Yeah, sure. They're spending so much money on like rooms at Mar-a-Lago, fuel for Air Force One, golf cart rentals, golf cart rentals, caddies, all sorts of things. So uh, Trump is hitting up. Arizona, Colorado, and Nevada this week. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll hear more lies and see more ecstatic people in red hats. The important point to make about this Mm -hmm. is he is out there talking to his voters. Right. We need to make sure we are out there talking to our voters. Absolutely. If you're sitting around uh, watching his rallies and getting pissed off about them, mm-hmm. then get out there and hold your own mini rally. Talk to your friends and neighbors. Join up with the campaign. Start pitching in in one of our super states right now because we have a lot of voters to reach, and the best way to do it is one-on-one conversations. Yeah, I think it's important to remember. I mean, there are a lot of Democratic candidates who are also holding surprisingly large rallies. Mm-hmm. As these dueling rallies happen, there are a lot of folks who aren't showing up for this. And those are the people who we need to talk to and make sure that they have a plan to vote, that they're turning out to vote, and that they vote in the right direction. Yep. And that they're registered. Yeah. Um, Great. Good you... show. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> um, did you see Did you see the uh, the photo of Air Force One? Taking off behind the NASCAR race that yeah. had to be that had to be taken down. That was not from. Uh... Or it was a, it was from a like a bush trip, right? To a NASCAR race, and uh, Trump's campaign manager tweeted it out. Just remember that the misinformation is coming from inside the house. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think just the key thing that I want to say right now is that this misinformation, this. Mm-hmm. Uh, technique that the Russians have used so effectively, authoritarian uh, regimes use it, the propaganda, it's not done to make you believe something that Mm. isn't true. Mm. It's done to make you question all truth, Mm. right? And no one is too smart or too well-read to not, uh, at a certain point, go, could that be true? Mm. Or I wonder about that. You know, I mean, it's just, it's our nature. That's why this stuff is so effective. Right. And um, and so the, the pushing of conspiracy theories that have been debunked, the outright lying about things, right. um, is made to not convince you of something. It's made to confuse you and um, and create doubt on, on all levels of the facts. What is reality? Exactly. This week in the news, our Attorney General, William Barr, weighing in on Trump's buddies and trying to help make the sentencing for his convicted felon buddies lighter Mm -hmm. and uh, being called out now by over 2,000 former DOJ employees Mm -hmm. uh, called out to resign. This is the stuff that's really scary. This is the stuff that we knew would happen. This is Banana Republic activity right here. Mm -hmm. The stuff in the last week 
with William Barr is really fascinating because and it goes back to your sort of like what is real, what's misinformation, what's the truth question. Right. They're they're playing around very smartly with this and it's good to see pushback from folks who were working at DOJ who resigned over the the issue with the Roger Stone sentencing. Right. And former employees who are saying, "Hey guys, this is not normal." And Barr is is not behaving in a way that's befitting someone of his position. He should resign. But we also know that, you know, Barr's kind of dinging the president a little bit. <laughs> Maybe. Well, look, so this is Maybe. This this goes to the overreaching point that we all should be aware of because we every there's so much focus on Trump because he's just as you said, he's easy to make fun of. He's a big giant buffoon. He's a you know, threat to our security, to our nation, to the world. Mm-hmm. He's a horrible wannabe fascist, racist, bigot, misogynist. All of those things is true. But he would not be president of the United States if the Republican Party had not paved the way for him to be president of the United States. Of course. So um, they have a president that's fulfilling their mandate, that's doing the things that they've been doing, but is just way too loud about it and way mm-hmm. too overtly racist about it instead mm-hmm. of being quietly racist. Like he doesn't use a dog whistle. He used a big bullhorn bull yeah. <laughs> in, in the form of his tweets. So Barr is not really admonishing him for his actions mm-hmm. or trying to justify his own actions. Mm-hmm. He's more just being like, dude, shh, shh, quiet. Like, I, I got this. Like, don't, don't say that out loud. We got to, you know, we're going to get mm-hmm. caught. Like, they're already caught. They can do whatever they want at this point right. until we vote them out. But right. so, what is good times. Reality? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that that's the hard, we've got the hard stuff out of the way for the week. What are you, what are your reasons for hope this week? One is in North Dakota. You might remember last uh, last presidential cycle, there was a law that required North Dakota voters to have a physical address in order to register to vote. Mm-hmm. And this was blatantly disenfranchising Native Americans, uh, specifically who live on reservations, mm-hmm. because most of the people who live on reservations use post office boxes right. and don't have a residential address. So it was uh, a way of suppressing that vote and keeping them from voting. That has been overturned now. Nice. They no longer have to have a residential uh, address to register and to vote. So um, that's a big win. That's great. That sort of law also re- really does uh, disenfranchise a lot of rural folks, a lot of unhoused people. Mm-hmm. So I hope other states take notice of uh, of that law being overturned. Carrying on from our with our voter disenfranchisement theme, uh, mm-hmm. there was a great article in The Hill that new voters are registering in Georgia faster than the GOP can purge them. Nice try, GOP. Stacey Abrams is on the case. Stacey Abrams and her Fair Fight 2020 organization, which is doing amazing work, yeah. uh, especially in Georgia, registering um, young voters especially which is really exciting because, of course, we know that they are leaning Democrat. That's awesome. Yep. So this works, but we got to keep doing it. We got to keep doing it. You know, we're fighting back by registering Democrats every chance we get. Um, Fair Fight is doing incredible work. So check it out if you're not familiar with it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what about you? What gave you hope this week? My reason for hope this week is that the California legislature is going to formally apologize to Japanese families that were interned during World War II here. And this is huge. This is really important. This is the definition of what Dr. King used to say, which is that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Mm. And, um, you know, the order to remove Japanese Americans from their homes and businesses was given by FDR. But California is taking responsibility in policies that helped lead to the order from the federal government. And so taking responsibility, apologizing, recognizing that uh, this was a move that took away people's dignity, took away their freedom, 
and disrupted their economic output for for their families for, for a couple of generations is really important and a good reminder that these fights, they don't stop. They're always continuing. And what we're doing to people now, we will have to pay for and confront down the road. Awesome. Let's talk about what what we want people to do this week. That's right. If you're a new listener, um, you don't Welcome. get to just listen. You got to do stuff. You got to take action. So what are we going to do uh, this week, it's, Mariah? It's still phone a fr- friend February, which I always stumble over. It's great <laughs> because February is extra long this year. So you've got more chances <laughs> to phone a friend and tell them about this amazing podcast that you're listening to and why they should listen to it and get inspired and, and take action. So phone a friend February, we're asking every listener to reach out to one of their friends or family members and uh, let them know that they should subscribe. Get them Ask, to subscribe. Tell them Don't to subscribe. let them know. Tell them to subscribe to this Grab podcast. Grab their phones, hit subscribe for them, or... or you had a great point that even though the alliteration isn't as good, to text a friend. I got a text. I got a text last week from a friend <laughs> with the link to this podcast. <laughs> I was having fun with that. Yeah. <laughs> he was reminding me that I need to phone a friend this month. So yeah, great. And then the other thing that we we want everyone to do if they haven't done it yet is to join a swing left group in your area. You can go to swingleft.org and um, put in your zip code, find a group, and join it. If there's not a group in your area, you could start your own group. We got a great message from Andrew P., a preschool teacher in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, Andrew! Which I love because my roots are in Oklahoma. My family's all from Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. I was born in D.C., but everyone else, my brother, my sister, my parents... All, all from Oklahoma. You're all Okies. We're Okies. And um, he listened to the podcast and thought about starting a, uh, a group because there wasn't one in his small blue bubble there in Tulsa. So That's amazing. Andrew, I hope your, your group is doing well. Even if it's a small group, you can get a lot done. Be like Andrew and start up a group. Go to swingleft.org and type in your zip code. You'll see if there's one there already. And join up with this great community. Yeah, all of this stuff is best done with like-minded people. Exactly. Starting in small groups in your community is how the Obama campaign started organizing. That's true. That is true. Um, The Obama campaign did an incredible job of organizing, both for the first election and the re-election. But really, that first election was just groundbreaking. It was amazing. And um, so many lessons from from that first election that we can apply to the place that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. And um, we had Chris Liddell Westerfeld in talking about his experience organizing in that election as a volunteer and then joining the staff and all the interviews he had with volunteers and staff members. And uh, God, we could have we could have gone two hours with yeah. this interview with him. Because... We didn't. You don't have another two hours <laughs> left in the podcast. But no. uh, he shared some awesome tidbits and nuggets. And you can find more in his book, of course. But he, Yeah, he, the book's he, really great. Yeah, he gave us some, some good stuff about um, what it was like. The other great thing about talking to Chris was uh, it was such an important reminder to – is you're thinking about who you're voting for, who you're volunteering for at the presidential level, mm-hmm. um, who you think is the best candidate, not who you think statistically right. can beat this person or that person, not who you think is the best person. If you know you you're not going to vote for the person you want, you're going to vote for the person who's going to get like the delegates from your congressional district in the second. You know, don't All try the strategy. To, yeah, don't try to be strategic. Follow who you think is the person who's going to be the best for you and your family and your neighbors and your community. Yeah, I think one thing I'm paraphrasing what he said in the interview is that if you uh, if someone really speaks to your heart. Uh, chances are they're speaking to other people's hearts too. Mm. 
So enough paraphrasing. Let's listen to what Chris has to say. Chris Liddell Westerfeld joined the Obama for America campaign in 2007 and spent five years on the Obama White House staff. Since 2014, Chris has been documenting the story of the Obama presidency through oral history interviews. That work has culminated in his great new book, They Said This Day Would Never Come, Chasing the Dream on Obama's Improbable Campaign. Uh, first of all, your book is drawn from over 200 interviews with Obama alumni. Right? That, that's right. And I think um, at least half of them have their own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I really appreciate you coming on our podcast with you know so many yeah. choices out there. Uh, it's great to be here. It's great to, uh, to be in, in the Swing Left uh, Nation. <laughs> yeah, Swing Left Nation. <laughs> I like that. Um, no, I... I really found the stories in your book really inspirational. They're exactly the kind of stories that we like to tell on this mm -hmm, podcast. So yeah. um, I'm excited to talk more about it. But before we do that, I want to know how you got started. How did you get started in politics? What was your like first volunteering experience like? First volunteering experience. So I grew up in Iowa, um, in Iowa City, which is uh, the college town of Iowa for anyone who hasn't been there. Mm -hmm. um, it's home of the Iowa Writers Workshop. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up there, and then when I was in college, um, I also went to college in, in Iowa City at the University of Iowa. And when I was there, I caucused for the first time in 2004. Um, and originally, I was a film major at University of Iowa. Okay. But around the time of the caucus, I started getting really into um, kind of swept up in, in what was going on that year. Uh, the Bush administration had invaded Iraq in spring 2003. Mm -hmm. um, and as I kind of realized, uh, you know, people my age were being sent to war because of how the 2000 election had gone, I started to track elections much closer. And um, in Iowa, it's very easy to see politicians up close because of the caucus. And so I, during the 2004 campaign, I went to a couple rallies. I ended up caucusing that year. And then as the summer approached, I ended up spending almost all my free time that summer volunteering down at the, the carry office. Okay. And so what I realized later was what a terrible job I was doing volunteering. Uh, <laughs> oh I, uh, what were you doing so wrong? <laughs> well, I, I spent an inordinate amount of time um, on yard signs. I was oh. one of those people who was... Who was who, um, was like well what i what would be really helpful would be to place a bunch of yard signs and um uh, you know i don't like making calls so i'll just do <laughs> so you were going out into the community and putting signs in people's yards yeah so i you know i had some direction so i would go out and i would i would put some signs in people's yards and then a, a elementary school teacher of mine was running for congress that year um in the in the district and so i ended up interning for his campaign and um Again, I, you know, I have no artistic ability. And so I, um, but again, yard signs were something that were talked about a lot. Uh, and so I, I painted a bunch of barn signs, but um, I didn't use any stencils to do it. So I would hang these up around town in people's yards who had agreed to put one up. Charming. And, it must have been nice. Yeah. There were, so some friends of mine were actual artists and would use stencils, but then I would just kind of wing it. And um, you could pick mine out very easily if you drove around <laughs> town. They would just kind of be sloping to the right and oh. shaping. Um, and the candidate did not win. Uh, but that was my first experience. Because yard signs Maybe, but don't also vote. This is a right? good reminder that there's a there's a place for everyone on a campaign. Your skills will be put to use, yeah, whatever yeah. they may be. <laughs> no, I like I like a good yard sign. I like putting yard signs in my yard. But uh, most campaigns will tell you yard signs don't vote. Right. Um, <laughs> but I also spent some time uh, – so I would also do canvassing mm -hmm. um, as a volunteer. And so I think that was my first real – political engagement, um, the experience of canvassing for the Kerry campaign that year. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I, I really got swept up in, in following politics for the first time then. And so I would just waste inordinate amounts of time, um, <laughs> before Twitter refreshing realclearpolitics.com, right. like trying to dissect the latest polls, none of which I understood. And, you know, just like dreaming about what soon to be president John Kerry and his soon to be massive democratic Senate right. majority could right. accomplish. Um, so the morning after the 2004 election, I woke up and like a lot of people was just kind of stunned right. um, because I had, 
you know, I, I could not conceive of how a president who had lost the popular vote and then taken us into a war on false pretenses in the Middle East could possibly be reelected. I was with you there. Yeah. And um, so what I did after the 2004 election, I just had this general sense that I wanted to do something, whatever that meant. Um, and the something became reading as much as I could about past elections. So I spent all this time reading about, you know, how past presidential elections had gone, what the history was. And I realized growing up in Iowa, growing up specifically where I was in Iowa and going to school there, I was in a perfect position to get involved in the next presidential election. Um, and very quickly, candidates who wanted to run in 2008 started visiting. And so I would start going to all of these small events that they would do where they mm -hmm. would essentially pitch Iowans on running for president. Mm -hmm. um, none of them had declared yet, but things would happen like – Former governor of Virginia, Mark Warner, showed up and played basketball with a dozen college students. <laughs> um, John Kerry attended a football tailgate where um, a photo was taken of him being offered a beer bong, which went out on the <laughs> um, And so you would find – there were all these opportunities where you could go and you could see these people um, up close, but there wasn't a ton of media. Uh, they would just be meeting quietly with Iowans and kind of um, subtly pitching them on running in the future. So I would go to these and I would, I would, you know, be looking to get inspired basically. Like I was very hungry to be a part of something. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't totally know what that was. I knew it, I, I generally was interested in politics and public service and government. Um, this idea of uh, – I saw that as a way to make change in the world. But I had a very vague notion of what that meant. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really get excited with, about anybody. Mm -hmm. But then Barack Obama came in fall 2006. Heard of him. Uh, yeah. And I followed him. <laughs> I'd followed him very closely, and so um, me and a couple friends went to see his first time he spoke there. And you know, after that, I just kind of threw myself at it. Yeah. So you immediately started volunteering. Well, so he, he came in September 2006 for the first time to Iowa for the first real event he did in Iowa. Um, and that's when people started talking about maybe he will run for president. And that's around the time okay. his public statements, after saying for so long, I'm not going to run – begin to change. And so when he eventually announced an exploratory committee in January 2007, mm -hmm. I remember sitting at my computer donating money but thinking, um, you know, it'll look better if uh, the donations are smaller. So breaking up like a $50 donation into $5 donations <laughs> uh, and just like hitting, hitting donate a few times. Wow. Um, oh. Strategic. That the is beginning. so strategic. <laughs> Galaxy brain. <laughs> think about that. Uh, so I, so I was really into this thing. Um, but I did what a lot of people do when something like that happens: is I signed up to volunteer online, mm -hmm. and no one called and me. Never heard back. Never heard back. Right. Right. Yep. Typical. You know, especially you know he hadn't planned on running for a long time. It mm -hmm. wasn't like there was this massive infrastructure in place. So I just started reaching out to everyone I knew in Iowa politics, basically saying. Obama's going to run. I want to be involved in it. I want to help in some way. Can you put me in touch with somebody? Mm -hmm. And eventually somebody connected me with the guy who um, ended up being Obama's number two guy in Iowa. And so I went to his first event that he had the day he announced in Iowa, volunteered there, and then just started spending all my free time uh, in my senior year uh, volunteering with the student group or volunteering in the local office. Um, and then when I graduated in May, they were hiring some people to be organizers. And so that's how I officially joined the Obama campaign. Small groups and talking to people and house parties and everything that that really formed the foundation of your campaign of the Obama campaign and really sort of changed the way that we look at grassroots organizing too. I mean, a lot of the the people who developed the organizing structure there, including feedback from Marshall Gans and Buffy Wicks and those people who were really centered on. Uh, personal narrative and connecting with people and listening um, and not just retail politics that that really changed the way we organized did did you know that was happening at the time or I think I knew in a general way that was happening at the time but I, I didn't it was only later um, that sort of that lens was put on it uh, you know there was kind of this um, in Iowa this cocoon. Um, where you didn't know what was happening outside of Iowa when you were there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think one of the things that the campaign really tried to do, and, and people, you know, I didn't fully understand this until I started interviewing people about it, is um, take some of the tactics, uh, house parties, one-on-one -on -one meetings, um, that, you know, are, are often a part of any campaign, but, but take the tactics of movement politics and apply it in an electoral context. Mm. Um, and I think such a big commitment to that, both financially and staff-wise, um, was something that hadn't happened in a, in, certainly in a long time. And so 
yeah, tons of time just meeting with people one-on-one and um, talking about your personal story. Um, But that happened even more in states with fewer resources. So, you know, the plan for Obama in 2008 was essentially, if we don't win Iowa, we have no shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, the staff in Iowa was probably about a quarter of the people that worked on the campaign. Everybody else Mm -hmm. was in other early states, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Some of them were in states that had primaries a month after Iowa. Some of them were in headquarters. And so interviewing people who had been in these other states outside of Iowa where you had less resources, where you had to rely more on either your volunteers uh, or where in many cases people would, outside of the early states, just take it upon themselves to organize with fairly little direction from headquarters, Mm. um, which, you know, can sometimes make campaigns nervous when people do that. But it was essential. So by the time any staff came in to some of these states, which were called February 5th states, I think the equivalent this year would be March 3rd states, you yeah. know, the day 20 plus states vote. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time the staff arrived, it was only four to eight weeks before Election Day. Mm. And you can't stand up a real organization in that right. time. So what several people would say to me from the, the top of the campaign was, um, if not for those people taking it upon themselves to organize through uh, a website that felt very cutting edge at the time, but looking back uh, is no longer mybarackobama.com. Um, it, it was essentially a vehicle for people to find each other in these communities mm. um, and start their own groups um, and, in a spirit that I think was very similar to what we saw after the 2016 campaign. All these people you know, taking it upon themselves not just to want something to be different, but to do something about it and to find like-minded people in their community um, and take action. And so hearing those stories of those people, you know, outside of Iowa, outside of the early states who had less resources um, uh, and who also, you know, hanging over that entire year, there's no guarantee that the campaign's ever going to reach them. You know, so like you're organizing in this space where you have no idea if your primary is actually going to matter. And if you wait until you know it will matter, it's too late. So, I, I mean, hearing about how people would motivate themselves, like what kept them going, many of whom had never been involved in politics before, Mm -hmm. uh, was one of the things that really uh, was enjoyable about this. What do you think makes an effective organizer? Well, I should say, you know, I was not a great organizer. I was, I, I was pretty middle of the road. Or what should people avoid you <laughs> saying? You keep saying that. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's not false humility. Yeah, he won oh, Iowa, went on to win the presidency, and I think it's because of you. <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, what, what so many people would talk about was this sense of being a part of something. Uh, this thing that can be, you know, it's very difficult to quantify, and a lot of pieces of campaigns are very numbers-driven, mm-hmm. but... This sense that when you walked into a field office or you sat down with a group of people at a house party, like this this connection you would feel with other people who were engaged in common cause and this feeling that we're all in there together. And, you know, Obama was the inspiration for that for a lot of people. But the reason they would stay, the reason they would keep volunteering was the connections they made with other people who were also mm-hmm. interested in that. And so um, especially because he, he was not expected to win for most of that primary. And so these people who would kind of take this leap of faith together, talking about the connections they formed with each other was was really important. So I think something that is, you know, really great organizers are able to foster that sense of belonging, mm-hmm. um, that sense of camaraderie. And I think the other thing is, um, you know, there was this motto in Iowa that the Iowa State Director came up with, which was respect, empower, include. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that uh, if people feel respected, if people feel empowered, if people feel included in what you're doing, then they're going to be so much more effective at it. And they're going to evangelize on behalf of the candidate in a way that you never, that, that you can't hope to, uh, because they already have relationships in this community. So I think those are two things that are really important to remember. And I think a third thing that's important not to do, uh, a mistake <laughs> that I made, is to project your own experience onto the community you're organizing. Mm. So, you know, I grew up in the same place. I went to college in the same place. Then I organized in that same place. And so when I became an organizer, I I didn't really know how to do the job, but I knew the community I was working in. And so um, when I left Iowa after the Iowa caucus to go somewhere else, it took me a couple states to realize I need to stop assuming everywhere is like the place I grew up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And listening to what people tell you about the cultural dynamics of that place, the social dynamics, um, the history that is on people's minds when you just drop in as an organizer for a couple weeks. Um, really listening to people who who live there and taking your cues from them, I think, is something that um, is um, 
it can be easy to forget when you're also being pushed to do X number of phone calls or X number of door knocks. Um, right. And you have these really concrete goals as a campaign you're trying to hit. Yeah. Um, in spite of what you're describing as awful failures uh, <laughs> on the campaign, you joined the Obama White House. Mm-hmm. So... Can you? Yeah, you uh, must have tell, done pretty. Yeah, they must have. You thought might you be did selling right. yourself a little bit short. <laughs> um, what did you do there? Uh, so my job at the White House, uh, and this sort of is what led me to uh, do some of these interviews for the project that became this book, was um, I had a couple jobs. One was in the correspondence office, which is essentially the White House mailroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the great things about working there is I met my wife. <laughs> oh. uh, and later on, though, I had this job where. I made the president's briefing book. And so mm. um, the briefing book was essentially this this book of materials, schedules, decision memos, national security memos, draft remarks, constituent letters. Every piece of paper that would go to the president kind of went through this office. Um, and so I saw up close the way a presidency is documented. You know, every photo is public record. Every email is archived forever. And so much goes into preserving the presidency for history. But after a while, I started to realize comparatively little had been done to document the campaign that put the first black president in office. Mm. Um, and so much of that campaign, you know, what the president would say throughout that campaign was, it's not about me, it's about you, which obviously can sound like a cliched line. But at the time, and and I, I part of the reason people felt so passionate about him is because when he would talk about organizing, he had been an organizer himself. Right. And so one of the things that I would hear when I do these interviews is um, David Pluff, the campaign manager, said to me, uh, you know, if you were a volunteer or an organizer on the campaign, you thought Barack Obama thought you were the most important person on the campaign. Mm. And he thought that. <laughs> you can't manufacture that. Um, and so this bond that he would have between his supporters was not just based on the words he said, but, you know, his personal history, I think, as an organizer. Mm-hmm. And so after working in the White House for a few years, I left in 2014 to start this oral history project um, to interview people about the 08 campaign. And the the basic idea was, you know, not, not a lot had been written down except for memoirs from a few members of the campaign leadership. Um, but, you know, so often when I would talk to people about that campaign, and I ended up living with, you know, s- several people I worked on that campaign with, mm-hmm. you know, so much of my community came out of that experience. Yeah. Uh, and it was, you know, the first job I ever had outside of college, um, you know, where I was working full time outside of an educational institution. So it was this really formative experience that also happened to be very historic in the history of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so part of the idea was to capture through the voices of people on the ground, as well as who worked in the campaign leadership, what it was like to live through that experience. Mm-hmm. Because I think people, you know, now Barack Obama is the most popular politician in the world. Right. You know, when he recommends books, it's national news. Right. But when he started running for president, when all of these people decided to go work for him, he was very unlikely to win. And so hearing from people who had devoted themselves to his election when it wasn't likely to work out, but who did it anyway, hearing from them the progression from long shot to possible nominee to nominee to most successful politician of the last 50 years, hearing what that was like for them to go through was it was part of what I was hoping to, to get out of some of these interviews. Um, and so the book came out of that project. Mm-hmm. How did the election of Trump and the uprising of grassroots organizing that happened after that with groups like Swing Left and Indivisible and all that, like so, so many parallels, but Barack Obama inspired all this and connected with people and brought people to the campaign because of his message of hope and who he was. Trump brought all these people because of fear and outrage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so did anything change after Trump was elected for you and your approach to, to the book and the story you were telling? Well, most of the – I, I kind of gave myself a year to do it. So I, I intentionally wanted to finish most of these interviews before the 2016 election heated up because ah. what happens is, you know – um, uh, well, there's a wasted question. <laughs> no, but, but <laughs> do but, your research, Steve. <laughs> but it was no, but it, it was really helpful because um, I also did a number of them in 2019. Once um, I had the book lined up uh, to fill in parts that you know I hadn't talked with people about before. But one of the things that was really, um, I mean, I think this book, if it had been published in 2015, probably would have been very different than it looks now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of the reason is you know I 
I'm older. I've been through more. Um, I, I now, want, <laughs> now as the father of a two-year-old, I have a better sense of what it takes for someone to go volunteer and get childcare to do right. it. And yeah, um, you know, so my my appreciation for these people was always very high. But mm-hmm. um, after talking to so many people, after seeing after seeing so many people after the 2016 election, basically put their lives on hold to try to change the trajectory of the country. Um, what what is different about what was happening then versus what was happening in 2008. If you had this desire to elect Barack Obama, it was it was hard sometimes to find the campaign if you didn't live in an early state, but essentially a structure existed for you to go be a part of it. You know, you could go to his website, you could sign up online. Um, it's, it's something that already existed. And one of the things that impressed me so much after the 2016 campaign is all these groups were stood up out of nothing. And there was no central coordinating body. I mean, it was all decentralized. Yeah. Um, and people not only found a way to uh, express their passions, but found it a way to be effective politically when there was, you know, in most cases, not an existing structure to do it. Like all these people created a structure to be effective in. And so mm-hmm. seeing so many people discover both that they had a voice that they wanted to use it, but also that them using it could lead to something, I think was really informative when I went to write this book. Uh, and, you know, because there are many parallels to 2008, you know, that I think that spirit is really parallel, but it also helped me understand things that were unique from that period that both made them, that both made it easier for someone to join, but also harder in some cases. Um, because, the, you know, in my case, the campaign basically unfolded in my backyard. So I didn't have to do a lot. To, like I never had to make the decision to move anywhere to be involved in it. But so many other people that I talked to who were a key part of the, the campaign did have to make that decision. Um, right. And so hearing about what went into that for them, um, why they decided to kind of uproot their lives for this when it was unlikely to lead to this person getting elected but still thought it was doing anyway, worth doing anyway is something that you know having a little more distance became much more uh, obvious. I think because social media and the Obama campaign were kind of on the rise at the same time, (sighs) people probably feel like they know so much about the Obamas, of course, but also a lot of people knew a lot about the staff campaign and White House staff as well. I couldn't tell you who Trump's body man is but like everybody Lev Parnas is body man, I think. <laughs> but everybody knew who Obama's was at the beginning um and so but there's going to be some things in your book that will surprise people too because you are going back to the very beginning when people weren't really paying attention what are some surprises that you think people can look forward to? Yeah, well, I think one of the surprises is, you know, it is it is a little jarring to go back and be reminded just how many people thought Barack Obama could not get elected. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, especially now with this big conversation about electability that so many voters are anguishing over, yeah. you know, they don't yeah. want to make the wrong choice. Um, you know, when you go back and, and look at 2008, I mean – it was in no way obvious both that Obama would win the primary and that if he did, he would win the general election. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, it wasn't to me. Yeah. It, n- not at all. In, yeah. in fact, I uh, had a lot of affection for I thought he was great. I heard the early speeches. I was really impressed and happy that he was like this rising star. But I was one of those, oh, he's a junior senator. He should probably take some more time to build up his credentials. It's Hillary's looking strong. You know, I I didn't. And th- I quickly jumped on the bandwagon because I didn't want to be not one of the cool kids. But, um, <laughs> but. Oh, I think that was typical. I mean, I think too. You know, you go back to two thousand. Obviously, this is a dark period in our, our, I think, in our country's history right now. But I mean, the second Bush term was pretty dark too. And- oh, I was also mm-hmm. flabbergasted. Just like and and that lesson keeps me awake at night for uh, where we're heading in 2020 with Trump too, because I there was nothing in me that could conceive of a way for Bush to get reelected mm-hmm. for exactly what you said, you right. know. For, and when he was reelected, I I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe this country would do that. So um, clear eyed going into November 3rd, 2020. You know, I know it's possible mm-hmm. for Trump to get reelected. Yeah, and, and I think that. You know, 
understanding mistakes can sometimes lead you to look for, you know, a safe option. You know, like there's, right. you know, sh- like I'm going to mm-hmm. look at the polls. I know the swing voters in Wisconsin, but we got to get mm-hmm. the turnout and, you know, certain parts of Michigan. And you can try to, you know, think through this way too much. And you know, I mean, if you go back and look at a month before the Iowa caucus, a series of national polls were conducted, matchups between John McCain and each of the Democrats, and Edwards ran 10 points ahead of Obama. Oh, I remember that, yeah. And so, you know, there were there were voters who, I mean, if your number one thing was electability, you had all this data to tell you, well, I should support John Edwards. Right. Uh, and Edwards would, you know, in the final weeks leading up to the Iowa caucus, he would explicitly say, you know, the last few Democrats to get elected sounded like me. And you know what he was wasn't saying was they also looked like me, mm-hmm. um, because he was referencing Clinton and Carter, Southern right. Democrats. That was a big thing. And if you had said after Bush's, uh, you know, reelection, um, well, you know, I think the the most uh, successful Democratic politician since the passage of the Voting Rights Act is a first term senator from the South Side of Chicago whose last name rhymes with Osama and whose middle name is Hussein, <laughs> who su- who opposed the war that George Bush just got reelected promoting. Right. Um, they would have said you're crazy, right. uh, but I, it doesn't work that way. I mean, yeah. you know, this idea that you know one part of your resume or one position you hold or one part of just your personality makes you un, quote unelectable. Um, uh, I, I think the Obama example disproves that, and I think when people think about electability for this election, it's important not to try to overthink this stuff and you know think about uh, if someone moves you, odds are pretty good they will move someone else. And there's no way to predict 10 months before the general election after a billion dollars worth of negative ads, after the president directs his Justice Department to investigate the candidate, after he encourages foreign countries to interfere with the election, who will be electable after all that? Yeah. Um, but what you do know is how someone makes you feel right now after seeing them for the past year. And odds are pretty good if they make you feel good, they'll make other people feel good. Yeah. I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, uh, I know – like. Our podcast is called How We Win, right? And um, and it's it's actually a very simple formula. We win when everyone gets involved, right? right? When everyone shows up to volunteer. Not just show up and vote, but get people to vote. Show up to volunteer. And that takes someone that inspires you. That takes someone that you're, you know, their message resonates and you get excited about. And, um, you know, I, I think we have a great field of candidates right now. I, I you know, I think they can all beat Trump because we have enough, if we have enough energy you know, behind them. But I also want a candidate that's going to inspire enough volunteer energy to make sure that we are active in those Senate states and, you know, we take the Senate as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's just me. No, I think I'm just one guy. I think that's important. <laughs> yeah. One guy with a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of those volunteers, is there a particular story from your book that really resonated with you? Just someone that, you know, really touched you with their story? One of the stories that stuck with me was from Iowa. It was this woman who worked as a nurse in this um, this place called Marshalltown, Iowa, and she'd never been involved in politics before. But a couple months before the caucus, she um, uh, she committed to Barack Obama, and her, along with almost her entire extended family, she had uh, I think two or three kids. Um, her aunt lived in town. Her great grandma lived lived in the area, and um, they essentially all became committed to Obama and volunteers for Obama. One of the most committed volunteers in this community. About a week before the uh, caucus, someone came and defaced her yard sign, um, spray-painted racial slurs on her house, um, stole the Christmas presents that her family was keeping in her garage. And um, so one of the first people she called when that happened was the local Obama organizer. Hmm. Um, And so interviewing her about, you know, that that really tough experience for her family – she talked about how she felt like these these people who worked for Obama in the community were a huge part of her life. They became mm-hmm. a huge part of her family's life and how she had never been involved politically before. But shortly after this happened, her and her family uh, got a chance to meet then-Senator Obama. Um, they had met him before because Iowans often have the chance to meet politicians <laughs> when they're running. But, um, you know, he took a, a few minutes to talk to the family, you know, ask if there was anything we could do and – Talking to her and both the organizer about the relationship, the the emotional bond that formed over the course of that year was typical of other people I talked to, how close they became to each other. Um, and one of the things she said that struck with me was she talked about how the night of the 2008 election, she didn't really, you know, it, it didn't seem real to her that Obama could win until 
until he had won. And so she, uh, her family is African American, and she talked about her great grandmother calling her the night of election night and saying, you know, I never really thought this was going to happen. I can't believe this happened. And she talked about the the sense of pride she felt that her family, her kids, had helped in this very, you know, in their corner of the world, they'd played this role in making this historic thing come about. Mm. Um, and so she talked about the pride she felt in that. But I think, you know, examples of that story played out thousands of times across mm -hmm. the country. And people who, you know, may, maybe didn't enjoy making phone calls, getting hung up on, didn't enjoy getting doors, you know, slammed in their face sometimes when they canvassed, but were willing to do the, the hard work that you have to do to be successful in this stuff because they felt like, if I don't do this, this isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, recognizing that in themselves. And so those are the stories that really stuck with me, hearing about the relationships that formed between people when they would do it and the sense of pride they felt when it was over, that they had played some very small role in help making it happen. Um, you also recorded with President Obama for the book. Um, what did he tell you that you think listeners need to hear right now? <laughs> uh, something he said that, that's in the book that really stuck with me was this idea that he was the front man, but the organizers and volunteers on the campaign were the band. Uh, and he talked about how when he saw people work as hard as he saw people working, he wanted to be worthy of those efforts that he didn't want to screw up and how that, you know, again, I mean, I keep talking about this bond between people, but it was something that everyone would bring up. And so hearing him talk about it in the same way that um, people had worked on the ground talking about it, it was really striking that it went two ways, mm -hmm. um, that this feeling of connection he felt to people who were doing the work that was, you know, similar to what he had done as a young person mm -hmm. inspired him and he felt made him a better candidate mm -hmm. and, but also made him feel like, I cannot let these people down. Yeah. Um, I think that was the big thing. And the fact that he recognized that is not something I think all candidates for office recognize, uh, that their success is only possible if enough people are willing to help them be successful. But I felt like that was something that he never took for granted, and people who had worked for him would talk about that too. So the candidate has to inspire the volunteers, and the volunteers also inspire, inspire the candidate. The candidate. <laughs> That's really cool. That's the circle of a successful campaign, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the other thing that you know I hadn't fully realized until I did these interviews was how important it was that um, the people that were leading the campaign, whether in the states or at the national level, put in place a structure where volunteers not only were part of the campaign but were essential to it. Mm -hmm. They created a, a structure that was – centralized enough that you could feel a part of this, but was decentralized enough that if there was not a staffer in your town, you could go about the work of organizing your community until there was someone there. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so I think I think that's really important too. You know, th that, that operational stuff is easy to take for granted, um, but is really important when you talk about building a national organization in a short amount of time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's how Swing Left was organized, and that's how a lot of successful campaigns that rely so much on volunteers stepping up, like so many people have, really empowers them to, to do that. So, yeah. One last question. What gives you the most hope heading into 2020 here? So I think something that somebody somebody pointed out in the book is, uh, you know, sometimes when people talk about the OA campaign, they talk about it like that song Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen, you know, the, a bunch of high school bas baseball championship players just right. talking about how great it was. And, um, you know, I, I think as great as the OA campaign was, as, you know, inspiring as Barack Obama was, there were things that made him unique as a candidate. There were things unique to that moment in time. But I think the spirit that animated so many people to um, – not only want something to be different, but to feel compelled to go do something about it mm. um, is something that I think is so present, maybe even more so right now than back then, mm. because there are so many ways to get involved now that um, and those outlets didn't exist back then the way they do now. And so the thing that makes me really hopeful is the stories I hear, the people I meet um, who have become politically active in the past few years um, because having a bunch of people who want something to be different is not enough to change something by enough, uh, by itself. Right. Mm. But nothing will change without that. Mm. Right. And so I, I think that is the thing that I find so hopeful about this moment right now. So many people who are not only just watching MSNBC or tweeting or posting on Facebook, mm -hmm. but 
um, are taking concrete action in a way that builds political power. And I think uh, we've seen the effects of that over the past couple of years, what that can achieve. Um, and the thing that I'm hopeful for is uh, what it will achieve, not just in 2020 at the national level, but at the local level, at the state level in the years to come. Right on. Well. Great note to end on. Thank is, you so much, yeah. Chris. For... And, and for our listeners, again, the book is called They Said This Day Would Never Come. And it's really, really a great book and mm-hmm. an amazing project uh, project to hear this story unfold from the organizers and the volunteers' yeah. own words. Um, so thank you for putting it together. We'll have a link to it on our site, too, so people can can grab it. And the audiobook is out now, too. That's right. right. The audiobook is out. Uh, 60 of the voices in the book, David Axrod, David Pluff, John Favreau, Dan Pfeiffer, President Obama himself. They all um, did it from their own podcast studio. They didn't have to go anywhere. <laughs> uh, but many, multiple of whom were recorded right here in Outlaw Studios. Right. Uh, so yeah. uh, I, I really do hope oh, people nice check out. out the book. Yeah, <laughs> nice shout out. Yeah, we had Michael Blake, uh, and then he came and did our podcast after recording for your book. Yeah. It's only eight hours, so that's like, you know, <laughs> that's nothing on an audio book. Yeah, it's, you can, it's a commute in L.A. You speed it up a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but thank you guys so much for having me, and thank you um, to Swing Left for all the work you've done over the past few years and the work you'll continue. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thanks for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We win when all of us get involved, and our work has to start right now. We want to hear from you. Who would you like to hear on the show? And what topics do you want to discuss? Let us know by emailing us at podcast at swingleft.org or call 347-WIN-2020. That's 347-WIN-2020. We just might play your message on our show. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and rated and given reviews. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Thank you to our friends at Dimcast. Uh, share us on social media. Use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. We always appreciate you being here and are excited to bring you more from the field next Wednesday. Mm-hmm.